My wife's name is Jen. My wife, Jen, has a younger sister named Sandy. Sandy is about three years younger than Jen. And it was a number of years ago, and by a number of years, I mean many years ago, Sandy was dating a guy, and she was getting more and more serious with this guy. So Sandy wanted Jen and I to meet this new guy. And we felt it was important as well. We wanted to meet him as well and kind of figure out if he was right for Sandy or not. So Sandy and Mike, that's his name, Sandy and Mike drove here from Chicago and we sat down for a dinner to get to know each other better. Now Jen, being the older sister, being the older, more protective sister, wanted to make sure that Mike was right for Sandy. Specifically, Jen wanted to make sure that Mike was a Christian. So we're sitting at this restaurant, and the salads were delivered to our plate. Now, we had some initial really good conversation. The salads were delivered in front of us on plates. And now keep in mind, this is the beginning of our dinner. And we had just met this guy. The salads had been delivered. The server leaves. And Jen drops the question of all questions. <laughs> Jen says, Mike, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? <laughs> Whoa. Now, for those of you that don't know Jen, it's a bit out of character. She is not a very aggressive individual. But when it comes to being the older protective sister, boy, the gloves came off. Mike, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Well, Sandy and I, we try to hide underneath the table. Mike, he doesn't know where to go because Jen is just glued onto him waiting for an answer. I try to kind of soften the blow, thinking that maybe it was going to get easier. There is, she had nothing to do with me. She's just focused on Mike, and Mike, Mike's a bit taken aback. A bit upset even. And so he kind of fumbles with his answer. And he says something to the effect, well, um, I think I would, I think I'd go to heaven. You know, I, I, I kind of know about Jesus and, and I'm a good person. Well, that was not the answer Jen was looking for. <laughs> but by this time, we realize that this conversation needs to go in a direct, different direction. So we take it in a bit of a different direction. And I do have to say that the night ended better than it started. And because I don't want to leave you hanging, I would like to let you know that Sandy and Mike have been married for 25 years. They've been married for 25 years. They have four wonderful children, a brand new son-in-law, a very weird dog. <laughs> he is. She is. Sorry, Sandy. She's probably watching right now, so I got to be nice to the dog. But Mike, Mike believes in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And Mike today is a godly man who has been an elder at his church and has even taught Sunday school class. And today, Mike would answer that question correctly. There was a survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center. The survey indicated that among adults in mainline Protestant and Pentecostal churches, almost half of those adults believed that they could earn their salvation 
and get into heaven by being or doing good works. Among Catholics, that number is 70%. 70% of Catholics believe that they can earn their salvation by being a good person. And shockingly, shockingly to me, 41% of people in evangelical churches, in churches like Calvary Church, believe that they can be good enough to earn their salvation and get into heaven. That means that 41% of you listening to me this morning may believe that you can be good enough to earn your salvation and get into heaven. Now, there's a problem with that. The problem with that, or at least an initial problem, is what's the standard? What is good enough? How good do you have to be to make the cut? That's an initial problem. But the real problem, the actual problem with believing that you can be good enough to earn your salvation and to get into heaven is that Jesus himself provides a completely different path to salvation and to heaven. Jesus says that you can never be good enough to earn your salvation. Yet people still believe that you can be good enough or that we can be good enough to earn our salvation and get to heaven. And it's not only people today. There are people back in the time of Jesus. Most of the people back during the time of Jesus believed that they could be good enough to earn their salvation. Most religious Jews felt that if they obeyed God's law, they would be declared righteous and therefore receive salvation in heaven. Most of those people followed the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, which Moses wrote down in the Torah. They read through the Proverbs and the prophets, which endorsed the law. They read the books of poetry, the Psalms, the Proverbs, which endorsed the law as well. And they believed that by following these rules, they could be declared righteous and they would earn their salvation. We have those same laws today in our Old Testament. Our Old Testament records those laws, the books of poetry, the prophets, the Psalms, the books of history. So this morning, the question becomes, what is it that Jesus said to those people back then who believed that if they were good, they would be declared righteous and they would earn their salvation and maybe more importantly for us here this morning, what does Jesus say to us? What does he say to you and what does he say to me about these rules that he has given us in our Old Testament? Do we have to follow them? What do they mean for you and me in our lives? Do we keep those rules? Because look, at, let's be honest, when you're given a set of rules, it is likely that you're gonna read those set of rules and want to follow them and it will make you prone to think that if I follow these rules, then I will earn something for following the rules. 
And if we're honest, it can all be a bit confusing. What is it that Jesus is going to say to us this morning to get us around the confusion? And he has something to say to you and to me this morning. So this morning, we're gonna look at two points to this sermon. The first point is we're gonna look at Jesus's relationship to the Old Testament law. He is going to explain to us his relationship to God's law, and then he is going to explain to us our relationship to God's law. So if you would, would you take your Bibles and would you turn to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5, it's found on page 786 in the Bible that's in front of you, and it will be helpful this morning if you grab that Bible and open it up to page 786. This morning, we're continuing our study in the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at our call to be salt and light in this world. Today, Jesus captures the attention of his listeners by hitting us right between the eyes. He says something that must have struck his original listeners as the most remarkable thing that they ever heard any one man say. So first, let's look at Jesus' relationship to God's law. Now remember, this would have been mind-blowing for the original listener. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now to understand, I think it's helpful to break these first two verses down to get a better understanding of Jesus' relationship to God's law. Look what Jesus starts with. Look how he starts. Look at those words. He starts by saying, do not think. So here we can assume that there were people who were thinking exactly that. Some people were thinking that he had come to create or to do something entirely new. At this point in Jesus's ministry, it's important for us to understand that Jesus had followers. He had disciples. His teaching was remarkable and impactful. He was teaching with authority. He had performed miracles and he had even healed people. And here, there were certainly people who believed that he had come to turn everything on its head or to turn everything over. And to get rid of the law of Moses would have been blasphemy. And to be frank, there were people who would have liked for him to try to get rid of the law of Moses. Because if he would have come to do something new or to get rid of the law of Moses then the people could have responded by dismissing him or even by getting rid of him. But Jesus doesn't give them that option. Jesus says that he stands directly in line with the law and the prophets. So what does it mean that Jesus stands directly in line with the law and the prophets? But before we look at that, before we answer that question, We have to make sure that we understand what Jesus means by the phrase, the law and the prophets. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus is referring to 
what we would call today the Old Testament. Our Old Testament is made up of books of law, books of history, books of poetry, and the prophets. In Jesus' day, they did not call these books the Old Testament. They just referred to them as Scripture. And in this verse, to be clear, Jesus is not just referring to the Ten Commandments. He is referring to all of the Scripture that came before his incarnation. So, he did not come to abolish the Scripture. He came to fulfill it. Now, at this point, your immediate, re immediate response should be, well, okay. What does it mean that he came to fulfill it? Now, that's a question that has been asked over and over again. And to be honest, there are multiple explanations or answers to that question. And it has been throughout the history of the church a bit of a controversial topic. So what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to provide you with, with five answers to that question. The first four answers have some applicability in them. I don't think they're completely accurate, and I think Jesus has much more to say to us when he says he has come to fulfill the scripture. The fifth answer is the preferable answer and what I believe is the correct one. So let's go through this together because I'd like you to see this. First, some people think that Jesus came to keep and obey the law. Some people think that Jesus' fulfilling the law means that he came to keep and obey that law so that his actions fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. The problem with this explanation is that Jesus' teaching is his focus here, not his actions. Look what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his what? His teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So the idea that Jesus came to fulfill in his actions the law is incorrect or not fully correct. It's not about Jesus keeping the law. He does keep the law, but this is not about Jesus ultimately keeping the law. Second, some people think that Jesus came to fulfill the law in that he explains it. This means that some understood the word fulfill to mean to reveal its full or true intentions. But there's certainly more here than just the intention to explain. Number three, some people think that Jesus came to supersede or do away with the law, meaning that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, makes obedience to the law no longer necessary. Through the history of the church, this idea or this concept has been known as antinomianism. Antinomianism meaning anti-law. But this idea is not accurate either. You see, some people believe that we no longer need to follow the law of God because God is a God of love and salvation is about grace. So that leaves the law out there somewhere where we do not have to consider it. But clearly, this is not what Jesus says in verse 17. 
in verse 17, he explicitly states that he has not come to abolish the law. Number four, some people think that Jesus came to tell people to obey the law. Yes, Jesus supports the law, but clearly there's much more to what Jesus is saying here in this verse, which leads us to the fifth view, which I believe is preferable and correct. Number five, Jesus coming to fulfill the law and prophets ultimately means that he came to provide the salvation promised in the Old Testament. I'm going to read that again because if you're taking notes, you definitely need to write this down. Jesus coming to fulfill the law and prophets ultimately means that he came to provide the salvation promised in the Old Testament. Now this becomes clear when we look at how Matthew has used the idea of fulfillment up into this point in his gospel. In the first few chapters, in the first four chapters of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew has talked or displayed, revealed this concept of fulfillment so that we can understand. You see, from the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew has pointed to Jesus as the Christ who came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. For Matthew, the birth and life of Jesus were predicted hundreds of years before his arrival. And when he arrived... He fulfilled all that was spoken of him. To prove my point, look at these verses from the first four chapters of Matthew. First, Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Next, this is Matthew 2, verses 4 through 6. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where was the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is a quote from Micah chapter 5, Verse 2, next, Matthew 2, verses 14 and 15. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a quote from Hosea 11, verse 1. Next, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, Weeping in great mourning and Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Next, this is Matthew 3, verse 3. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is speaking of John the Baptist. It's an Isaiah 40, verse 3 quote. Next and finally, Matthew 4, verses 12 through 16. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. 
Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is a quote from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Do you see this? Don't miss this. Matthew has been laying the foundation for this fulfillment in his first four chapters of his gospel. So when Jesus here in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount says he came to fulfill, Matthew wants us to understand that in light of all the talk of the fulfillment that has already been revealed in the first four chapters. And what is happening here is Matthew is proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of what we call the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. He is fulfillment of the books of history. And he is the fulfillment of the books of poetry. Jesus Christ in person, he is the fulfillment of all that is said and spoken of and written about in our Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus himself is fully aware of what is happening here. Look what he says at the end of his ministry. This is after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. He comes back to his disciples and look what he says. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Can you imagine this conversation? Can you imagine being there present when Jesus says, remember what I told you in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember when we were on that mountainside and I said that I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. I can't abolish the law because the law is all about me. I'm not going to abolish it. I'm going to fulfill it. It is everything that's been prophesied is revealed and is present in me. I am the one through whom salvation is found. There is no other through whom salvation is found. You cannot be good enough to earn your salvation. It is not good works that get you into heaven. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's why Jesus says later in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see what Jesus is saying there? It's not your good works. It's not your efforts. It's not being good. It is through me. Jesus is declaring salvation and heaven come through me. After Jesus' death, after his resurrection, and after he ascends to heaven, Peter is called before the Sanhedrin. He's called before the ruling leaders of Israel, the legal ruling leaders of Israel, and he gives a testimony it's like he swears on the Bible. He gives this testimony. And look what he says. This is Peter, what he says. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You see what's happened? All of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, has looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Good works are not the way. Being good is not the way. Following the rules is not the way. Jesus is the way. 
only Jesus is the way. Salvation is found in no other name than in Jesus Christ. Now, please, please listen. Please listen closely. Statistically, there may be 41% of you listening to me who believe that you can earn your salvation by being or doing good. With all the mercy, grace, and kindness I can muster, you are wrong. You cannot earn your salvation. There are not a good there are not enough good works for you to do. Salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. By believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, by asking him to forgive you of your sins and receiving him into your life as Lord and Savior, God gives you the gift of salvation through that belief in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus. But it may lead you to think that Jesus doesn't value the law, or what does he have to say to us about the law? Well, look at verse 18. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The smallest letter and the least stroke of a pen refer to the smallest letter in the Hebrew language and the smallest portion of that letter. Some of your Bible translations may say jots and tittles. I'm glad they changed that because it's a bit confusing and pretty hard to say. Do not get distracted by the language. His point is, the point here is making through exaggeration and through hyperbole, that the law and the prophets, all of the scripture, what we call the Old Testament, is valuable, important, and it all points to him. Which leads us to the second main point of this sermon. What is our relationship to God's law? Now this is important. Because if salvation is found only in Jesus Christ and not in our being or doing good, then what is the value of the law and the prophets for us today? Because we have a New Testament. Does that mean we ignore the Old Testament and just focus on what the New Testament says? What's the value of that law for us today? Do we have to follow the law? Do we have to obey it? Well, look at Jesus' answer for us in verses 18 and 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So does the law hold value for us today? Amen. Yes, clearly the law and the prophets have value for us today. So should we still obey it? Definitely, yes. It's pretty clear from these verses. You see, Jesus here is concerned with obedience to God's law. 
He says explicitly that he has not come to abolish the law, but has come to fulfill the law. And he is telling us in these verses that we are also to obey the law. But he is clearly, now this is important, he is clearly asking us for a different kind of obedience than the scribes or the Pharisees were giving. You see, their conformity to God's law was external and superficial. The Pharisees' obedience was external and superficial, and what Jesus is doing is he is calling us to a different kind of obedience. He is calling us to an obedience that comes and flows out of our hearts. He is calling us to an obedience that is derived from the love that we have for Jesus Christ. You see, for Jesus, obedience is a matter of the heart. Look what Jesus says here in John 14. Jesus says, if you love me, what are you going to do? If you love me, obey my commands. And then later, John records for us in 1 John chapter 5, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Look at this last line. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. Our obedience flows out of our hearts. It's not external. It's not superficial. It's internal, and it's an internality that flows out of our hearts as a demonstration of our love for Jesus. Is your heart for God? (laughs) Thank you. Is your heart for God? Yes, yes. If your heart is for God, Jesus says, then obey. Obey what Jesus has to say. Obey this Old Testament scripture. And this is what Jesus gets to in the next or in the remaining verses of chapter five. He's dealing with a heart issue in the rest of the chapter. In the rest of the chapter, Jesus is not giving a new law. What he is doing is he's looking at what was the letter of the law and he's helping us understand what is the spirit of the law. What is it that's coming out of the heart or what is it that should come out of our hearts? Look at the rest of the chapter. In verses 21 through 26, the letter of the law, the letter of the law said that we should not murder. But Jesus explained this to mean that even calling someone a name in anger is a problem, is a sin, And we must be ready to make peace with others. In verses 27 through 30, the letter of the law says, do not commit adultery. But Jesus showed us that this means not even looking at someone else with lust in our hearts. Verses 31 through 32, the letter of the law was interpreted to permit divorce. But Jesus showed the real intention was to honor marriage. Verses 33 through 37, The letter of the law permitted the use of oaths, but Jesus showed the real intention was to promote the telling of truth. Verses 38 through 42, the letter of the law permitted an eye for an eye, but Jesus showed that the intention of the law was for his followers to turn the other cheek. In verses 43 through 48, 
The letter of the law was that we should love our neighbor. But Jesus shows us that the spirit of the law flowing from our heart is the intention to actually love our enemy. See, you see this all throughout Jesus' teaching. It's more than just the letter of the law. It's more than external and superficial. It is internal that flows from the heart. Our obedience comes out of our heart because we love God. And this is all about love. Look what Jesus himself says when he's asked about the law. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is saying here that our obedience is to come out of our hearts because we love him. And the only way that this type of obedience can happen is if you actually have a new heart. And the only way you receive a new heart is you recognize that you cannot earn salvation through good works. You're not going to earn heaven by being good. Your new heart comes from belief in Jesus Christ. And when you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when you ask him to forgive you of your sins, he then gives you, he gives me a new heart. And it is out of that heart that the love flows. The love flows to God and the love flows to others and that love flows through our obedience. But you need a new heart. And it's crazy. God declares this back in Ezekiel. Look what he says in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you what? I'll give you a new heart and put what? A new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Our obedience flows out of our love for God and our desire to please him. And do you notice that last line? Do you see what the last line says in Ezekiel? And I will put my spirit in you. This is the new heart. And I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Because if you're like me, you recognize, well, yeah, I have a new heart and I want to obey out of love, but I'm always not so good at obeying. Sometimes I disobey and I don't do what God wants me to do and I'm not following his law. The promise from God is, is that he's not only gonna put a new heart in you, but he is going to enable you to keep his decrees. He is working in you through his spirit to help you obey. So there is this partnership that exists between the spirit and you to be able to obey God out of love so that you can be following Jesus in all things. He works alongside of us, enabling us. This past week, I came across a story about a famous piano player. He was once a famous piano player. His name is Ignis Paderewski. I'm sure there's not a lot of people here that have heard of Ignis Paderewski, unless you may be a pianist yourself. Ignis Paderewski was a famous piano player, and uh, everybody, it's kind of like Taylor Swift today, everybody wanted to go to his concert. 
Well, there was a mother who had a young son, and this young son had uh, taken up the piano, and he was at the beginning of stages of learning how to play the piano. So the mother felt it would be inspiring if she brought her son to hear Paderewski perform. So the mother takes her son to the Paderewski concert, and they're both excited. They entered the concert venue, and they sit down in the seats, and the mother starts talking to the people around her, and as any young boy would do, he decides that uh, mother's paying attention to somebody else, and I'm going to go and explore. So this young boy goes around and begins to explore, and he explores his way through a door that says no admittance. And he finds himself on the platform with a grand piano in front of him. The young boy sits down at the grand piano, and it's about that time that his mother realizes that her young boy is no longer by her side. She immediately gets nervous and starts to look around for her missing young boy. It's at that point that the curtains spread, the spotlight beams, and in the middle of the spotlight, there is this young boy on the piano playing chopsticks. It's right then that Paderewski enters onto the stage, quickly approaches the boy, bends down and whispers in his ear, don't stop, keep playing. Paderewski then sits on the bench next to the young boy, wraps his arm around him, in a complimentary fashion begins playing chopsticks along with the boy. Can you imagine what that version of chopsticks would have sounded like? The beauty of that version of chopsticks, the grandmaster piano player and the young boy together belting out chopsticks. Do you see the picture? You see, Jesus is that master. He has come to fulfill the law. He hasn't come to abolish it. There's not any of the portion of the law that's not going to be fulfilled. It's not going to go away. It all rests and resides in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, he says to you and he says to me, he doesn't say, hey, you don't have to worry about the law. Don't think about that. He comes up alongside and he says, don't quit. Keep playing. And then he sits on the bench right next to us. And he wraps an arm around us and he begins playing. And with the other hand, he begins playing. And such a beautiful music-making partnership is formed. You see, because in and of ourselves, we can't obey the law. But Jesus doesn't leave us alone with the law. He comes alongside to partner with us, to enable us to keep his law, to do what he has called us to do. Can you imagine what that nine-year-old boy would have felt like? Can you imagine what he would have felt like when the master piano player sat down beside him and together they belted out chopsticks? The beauty of that partnership. 
You see, I think sometimes we think, yeah, I'm gonna obey the law. I love God. I love Jesus and I'm gonna obey this law. And you know what? I think he's kind of restricting me. I think I'm, I'm not, you know, I'd rather kind of draw outside the lines, but I'm gonna do it because I love God. But we miss the fact that the law is designed for our benefit. It's designed for our good. So when the master comes around and begins to enable us and help us play this beautiful music, he is doing it for our good. He's doing it for our benefit, for a better experience for you and for me. You see, he comes alongside in this partnership and together we do what God has called us to do for the good of others and for our very own good as well. As I close, I have two questions for you. Question number one the question of all questions. If you were to die tonight, where would you go? I don't know how accurate the statistics are for Calvary Church, but up to 41% of you believe that you can be good enough to earn your salvation and get into heaven. And you can't. There is nothing you can do that will get you into heaven. You cannot earn your salvation. And Jesus is here this morning and he wants to sit at the bench beside you. But to sit at the bench beside you, you gotta give him your heart. You gotta confess your sin, admitting that there is nothing you can do to make it right. And you gotta believe in him, believing that he can do everything to make it right. Ask him to come sit at the bench with you and play. And then the second question is, is do you love Jesus? And if you love Jesus, he has called you this morning to obey, to do the things that he has asked you to do and not do the things that he has asked you not to do. He's called you to obey because you love him and because it's in your best interest. If you love him, obey. Jesus makes it very clear his relationship to the law and our relationship to the law. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your clarity. Lord, this is a difficult topic. But Lord, we believe that through your spirit, you share things, and we can understand things. So thank you for sharing this with us this morning. Lord, I pray for everybody who is listening. Lord, I pray that if there is one here this morning who has believed up until this point that they could earn their way to salvation through being a good person, I pray, Lord, that they would see that that is not possible and that they would put their faith and trust in you. Lord, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation, I pray, Lord, that you would enable each one of us to obey your law and what you have for us in our lives. Lord, I pray for all of us this morning that Jesus would be our vision. And we pray this in his name, amen.